0: Mark chapter six. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 14 through 44. Actually two different, two different narratives tonight that are often addressed separately, um, but I'm excited to try to uh, draw them together for us tonight. I believe that they go very well together. both the, the, uh, writer, the both Matthew, of course, the writer, Gospel, Matthew and Mark. Uh, pair these two events in succession, and um, I think that is not without mistake, and so I'd like to, I'm I'm very excited to share that with you tonight, an exciting study for me personally in this past week or so. Uh, Mark chapter 6, I'm going to go ahead and read the the first actual uh, story, the first narrative here, which is the uh, beheading of John the Baptist, the story that I think we're fairly familiar with, but I'm going to go ahead and read it through before we pray. And we'll get started here this evening. Mark chapter 6, verse 14. Now King Herod heard of him, for his name, that is Jesus, had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it is Elijah, and others said, it is a prophet, uh, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. Now we kind of take a historical flashback here. From verses 17 on on, this this has happened at some point in the recent past. Mark's giving us the backstory on this. He says in verse 17, For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John, that's John the Baptist, and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Note that, his brother Philip's wife, (laughs) and he had married her. Well, whose wife was he? Verse 18, Because John had said to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. It's not a good idea, Herod. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. That is, Herod, Herod Antipas, as we'll note here in just a moment, Herod heard John the Baptist gladly. Herod Antipas, who is a pagan man, not a Jewish man, not a a saved man by any means, not a believer in Yahweh and Jehovah God, who, who has this respect, for John the Baptist, but his wife Herodias, not a fan. Okay, uh, verse 21. Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias's daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, "Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you." He also swore to her, "Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half of my kingdom." So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. That is Herodias, Herod Antipas's wife says to her daughter Salome, as Josephus tells us, the head of John the Baptist. That's what you should ask for. Immediately, verse 25, she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist, on a platter, And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought, and he went and beheaded him in the prison. Brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples, that's John's disciples, heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time that we have together this evening. Father, we do pray that as we look into your word this evening, Father, that your name would be lifted up. I pray that I would say nothing that your word doesn't say, and I would say nothing that you do not have for me to say this evening. I pray that you give us understanding as we look at this, uh, this text, this story, a familiar narrative in your word. Father, we thank you for the, the directives that we can take from this, and I pray that this would be uh, directly applicable to lives tonight, that we would be challenged as we look at specifically the life of Christ and, and his response uh, to difficulties. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In, in game five of the 1997 NBA Finals, the series between the Utah Jazz, who was led by the, the team, was led by Carl Malone and John Stockton. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this. And the Chicago Bulls series is tied two and two. It's game five. And sick and suffering from flu like symptoms that at times he staggered. A dehydrated and exhausted Michael Jordan willed himself to 38 points against the Utah Jazz in this pivotal Game 5, adding to his legend as a clutch performer and a relentless competitor. Lacking energy, the Bulls' future Hall of Famer looked lost in the first quarter. He scored 17 points in the second quarter. Struggled in the third, then flickered on in the fourth to score seven points during a 10-0 run that erased Utah's 77-69 lead. His three-pointer in the final half-minute gave Chicago a lead that it did not lose, setting up the famous video clip of teammate Scotty Pippen helping his ragdoll pal off the floor. I'm sure if you grew up during this time or if you followed basketball at all at any point in your life— you have probably heard this story before. It's a legendary story, the flu game, 1995, uh, Chicago, Utah Jazz, or 1997, Game 5, excuse me. Um, very familiar story. And perhaps you, like me, occasionally think of this story when you're called on to do hard things during difficult times. Now, at the risk of holding up Michael Jordan as some kind of moral. Uh, example. I certainly am not, and I want to make that very, very clear. I am by no means doing that. I'm not even saying that he's a decent human being, but you cannot help but admire the resolve of a man who is so sick that he can barely stand up, yet goes on to score that many points and lead his team to victory in spite of being so painfully ill. Now, Michael Jordan was laboring through adversity and sickness. For what? For a championship. For a ring. An earthly, temporal reward. Something that is, frankly, when you ha- take an eternal perspective, worthless. Ultimately, right? Can we agree to that? Is that? I mean, is there really any value in that ring that he was laboring so desperately for? Eternally, no. No. On the other hand, we are laboring for a heavenly reward. And I'll remind you of what the Apostle Peter said in his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, what? Incorruptible. That fadeth not, an undefiled that does not fade away, that is reserved in heaven for you. That is the labor that we are doing. That is what we are laboring for, not for a temporal earthly crown. We are laboring for an eternal reward, but what does it take to distract us from our labor? How often are we prone to sit out? Or cease serving because of some kind of difficulty that arises in our lives. Have you ever caught yourself thinking something along these lines? Well, I know that the Lord really wants me to do this. I know that he's called me to do this. And I'm going to do that just as soon as things clear up. Just as soon as everything kind of levels out. Just as soon as things are a little bit easier and I get my act together, I'll, I'll, I'll do what God has called me to do. I know I've thought things like that. But if we wait until we have our act together to serve or until our life is problem-free, we will never serve Christ. We will always have problems. We will never be completely having our act together. It's not going to happen. If we wait until, until that happens, then it's never going to happen. We will never serve Christ. But I wanna, what I want us to see from this text tonight is that based on the example of Christ that we have in this passage, that we are called to serve Jesus Christ, whether it is convenient or not. And I know we haven't quite gotten to that point, but that is where we are going this evening. We've already read verses 14 through 28, and, and you may have picked up on a very important question that shows up in this passage. Who is Jesus? Who's asking that question? Well, everybody's asking that question, really. In this passage, Herod specifically is asking that question, and there's three, three theories on the identity of Jesus Christ at, the, at, at this stage of his ministry. This comes up a, a couple times. A couple people, Herod included, think that he is a resurrected John the Baptist, and that is what, what, what prompts this story about the beheading of John the Baptist here in this text. So Herod, he thinks... Well this guy I mean he's he's a beheaded uh, he's a resurrected John the Baptist. Some people think it's Elijah. They they base this on Malachi chapter 4 verse 5. Behold I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So some of them, they're, they're expecting that. So some people think it's Elijah. Some people think it's the resurrected John the Baptist. And some people just say it's, it's one of the prophets. And we, we saw that list. And again, this same list actually is, is repeated later by the disciples in Mark chapter 8. The Jesus asks the disciples and says to them, Whom do men say that I am? And Jesus and, and, and the disciples respond to Jesus and, say the, and they give them the same list. Well, some people say that you're John the Baptist coming back from the dead. Some people say that you're Elijah because of what Malachi said in Malachi chapter 4. Some people say that you're just one of the prophets. This question is a very important question. Who is Jesus Christ? Herod's opinion, again, is that he is a risen John the Baptist, which, again, is why we have this historical flashback in the text. You've seen this in movies. Sometimes you start a movie and you're in the present, so-called, and you take this flashback to the past. And to see what has led up to this point. Sometimes you completely forget that that's what's going on. And you get to the end of the movie and they come back to the present, right? Have you ever watched a movie like that? That's kind of what's going on here, okay? He's taking a step back in time slightly to, to give you an account of something that has recently happened so that we can gain the context of what's going back. In fact, he reaches back to Mark chapter 1, all the way back in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Mark had told us, hey, now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, okay? And that's all he says. Mark is hearkening back to something that he mentioned. Hey, he's kind of saying basically, by the way, I I know I mentioned earlier that John was put in prison. And I never finished that story. I never quite got back around to that. And that is what he's doing here in this text. So King Herod believes that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. So who is Jesus? We have these three theories. Then we have the account of the, je- of the death of John the Baptist. We have that starting here again in verse uh, 17. We have this story. Um, I want to talk about this guy, Herod. Okay. Now, um, we, we get a little bit more detail here as, as to exactly why John was in, was in prison. As I mentioned, this is Herod Antipas. There's a number of Herods that, sh- that show up. Uh, In the scriptures, but Herod Antipas, he was Herod the Great's son. I'll talk about that a little more in a moment. But he had married his brother, Herod Philip's wife. So his brother, Herod Philip's wife, who now he is married to, her name is Herodias. And John the Baptist had no problem speaking up about this. About telling Herod Antipas, hey, that's not okay. That is, again, Herod is not a Jew. But, but John the Baptist has no problem telling Herod Antipas, look, man, that's not, that is against the moral law of God. That is a, that is a big no-no. And, and, and perhaps even showed him in Leviticus, which we won't go to tonight for sake of time, but in Leviticus, I believe, chapter 19, where, hey, th- this is forbidden. This is not an okay thing that you're doing. It's against the moral will of Almighty God. And John didn't hesitate to let him know. Thus, Herodias is not... A fan. She obviously had held a grudge, it says in verse 19, held it against him and wanted to kill him. She held a grudge against John. But Herod, again, had an interesting relationship with John the Baptist in that he he obviously had some level of respect here for John the Baptist. Now, King Herod, again, Herod Antipas, he is. Technically, he's referred to in this passage as a king. He's really not a king. He's a tetrarch, okay? Um, which is they, they, Herod the Great, who is the same Herod the Great that shows up in Matthew chapter 2. The same guy who, uh, who killed all the babies, two and under, in, in the, in the uh, narrative account of the birth of Jesus Christ. Herod the Great, his kingdom, if you will, which really is basically a, a city state of the Roman Empire at this time, but his kingdom had been divided when Herod the Great died in 2ish BC, right around the time, just after Jesus' birth, actually. Herod the Great passes away, very sick man, and Herod's empire, again, really, which is all under the Roman Empire, was broken up into four. Sections and so Herod is actually again technically would be referred to as a a a tetrarch. Okay, and I actually have a a slide here that kind of just illustrates this here for you. And the territory listed there under Herod Antipas, that's the territory in purple there. That's the er the area up there at the top. Let's see, does this thing work? We got a little laser pointer thing here. Okay, there we go. So the area, this purple or it looks brown on here. This area up here, of course, is Galilee. This area of, uh, down here is Perea. And this is the territory that Herod Antipas would have had. Again, you can see the other four sections that are labeled here. We won't get into all that. But that's, that's the area that Herod was responsible for, this area of Galilee, which, again, up to this point, Jesus' primary ministry has been right in this area right here, Okay, right in the region of Capernaum, um, a, a fishing village just off the north, uh, northwest corner of the Sea of, of Galilee. So, Her- Jesus has been in Herod Antipas's area. Now, the, the, the Herod the Great and, and his family tree is a little bit complicated. Um, he had ten wives, okay? Herod the Great, ten wives. Antipas was the son of his fourth wife, Malthus. Herodias was the daughter of Aristobulus, who is Antipas's Antipas' half-brother, who was murdered by his father, Herod. Herodias was thus a granddaughter of Herod the Great through his second wife, Miriam I, and hence a niece of Herod Antipas. Okay? You got all that straight? Okay, here's a, here's a, a family tree that's going to make it make maybe just a tiny little bit more sense, okay? It's a big mess, okay? Um, let me just show you here. I, I, just, I can't even imagine what family reunions were like, okay? Um, so this is, again, Herod the Great... Uh, he, he reigned from 37 B.C. to his death in, uh, again, 2 or 4 B.C., right around the time of the birth of Christ. Um, he's got all these wives. This isn't even all of them, okay? He had 10 wives total, but from his wife, Miriam II, the, the he had uh, Herod Philip, okay? Herod Antipas was from his wife, Malthus, over here. Um, Herod Antipas is the Herod that's showing up here in Mark chapter 6. He marries this guy, or this girl, excuse me, Herodias, who was married to Herod Philip I, this guy here, but now Herod Antipas, by the time we find him, is married to her uh, after Herod Philip I. Does that all make sense? Okay? That doesn't seem like a very good idea to me. Technically, again, for both of these guys, actually, Herod Philip I and Herod Antipas, this would have been their niece. Okay? Um, not, not at all a, a, a very good situation. Again, family reunions would have been. Uh, quite a mess. Okay, so that's what's going on here. That is who we're talking about, Herod Antipas, who, who's done a very bad thing, morally a bad thing, and, and a very just family-shaking uh, thing as well. But here, here he is. He, we find him here. Uh, Herodias is very upset. She doesn't like the fact that John the Baptist is speaking out about this. So John has been imprisoned. But John, here in this passage, Herod the Great, or excuse me, Herod Antipas, makes a a very foolish promise, and and he he promises uh, Salome, who again is not listed. Her name is not here. We just know that from um, Josephus, the historian from this time period, uh, recorded her name. And uh, we we don't turn. We're not told exactly what the nature of this party is. You know, it says birthday party. It's a little bit questionable, even. But there's, they're having a big party, and the who's who of Galilee are there. Everybody that's important. Everybody who's anybody is there. And and Herod Antipas has his wife's daughter come out and provide the entertainment. Now we're not really told exactly what the entertainment was. Um, but we can only imagine it was probably, there was probably a lot of intoxicated men here, and there's probably a very sensual nature to this dance that she is doing, okay? And we, again, we're not, it's not, it doesn't say that, uh, but it's, it is somewhat implied. And, and Herod, uh, Anabas is at a place that he's not thinking very clearly. He offers this girl, we're not told how old she is, but he offers her up to half his kingdom. He likes what she's doing so much that he, he says, hey, whatever you want, it's yours. And she goes to her mom, again, we don't know how old this girl is, but she goes to her mom and says, what should I ask for? I don't don't even know. And she says, I know. And she seizes the opportunity, and even says there, an opportune day, in verse 21, an opportune day came, and that opportunity was for Herodias. Okay, he makes a foolish promise, John is beheaded, we know how the story goes. Herod feared and respected John but he feared, in losing, he feared losing the respect of the people around him more. And so thus, John is beheaded. He was more, Herod was more concerned about looking foolish in front of the people than he was concerned about John's life. And, and again, as Mark is telling the story, the life of John the Baptist really, to be completely honest, isn't really all that much in view here. Again, in chapter 1, he mentions kind of offhandedly at the same time as John is going in, into prison, Jesus is beginning his ministry. And here, again, we, we're given a little bit of a backstory here, but not a whole lot of detail. Okay, he's gone. And that's it. And it doesn't even really seem to be the point of the story. But a question has been posed. Who is Jesus. I put a verse, a couple of verses actually in the middle of your handout and I think in order to fully understand the relationship of these two narratives today, I think it's important that we look at Matthew's gospel and I included the transition that he gives in his gospel between these two narratives, okay? On the first, the first narrative being the death of John the Baptist, the second being the feeding of the 5000. Again, two narratives that we don't often uh, we we very, very seldom consider them at the same time. But I do believe that they're connected. But look at verse 12 of Matthew chapter 14, which again is on your handout. He makes an important note of transition here. Then his, that is, again, this is after the death of John the Baptist, Matthew tells the same exact story that we just heard in the Gospel of Mark, a little bit shorter. Then his, that is John's disciples, came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. Now, why might this be important? This is an important link between these two accounts. I want to be very clear here. When Matthew says, when Jesus heard it, I want to, I want to be clear that the it is very possibly that he heard about the death of John the Baptist. Okay? Uh, that he, his is the only gospel that records that detail. Matthew is the only gospel writer that specifically says that when Jesus heard it, he departed and went to a desolate place by himself. In the other narrative accounts, we have these two events connected, but it's not clearly stated that it was around, at that same time. So I believe it's very, very possible that when Jesus heard about the death of John the Baptist, he said, I need to get away for a little while. I need to rest. I need to take some time and grieve. Remember, what is the relationship of Jesus and John the Baptist? They're cousins, or they're related in some way. We, we translate it cousins, but I mean, it's, they're relatives of some kind. Mary and Elizabeth, they're, they're, it says that they're cousins. They're relatives of some kind. Jesus and John the Baptist would have been second cousins. They, they're related of, in, in some way. They're family. I believe that's very possible what Matthew is indicating, that Jesus hearing this says, I need... To get away, Jesus was human. We cannot forget that. We so often gloss over these human elements of the life of Christ the grief that he faced, the pain that he faced. Well, he was God. Yes, but he was also man. He also experienced grief the same way that we experience it. He went through pain, he faced temptation the same way that we experience it. We gloss over that. We say, well, he was God, he had power, but he was 100% man too. He needed to take some time and rest. And I believe that's very, very possible, exactly what has taken place here. Jesus hears about the death of John the Baptist, and he retreats. He says, I need need to get away. It's also possible, and and again, I want to be clear here. I don't don't want to read too much into this. Um, that, That, again, seems to be the most obvious interpretation. It is important to note that the it Grammatically could also be referring back to the beginning of Matthew chapter 14 again that text that's listed in the middle of your handout where uh, In the beginning of Matthew chapter 14 similar to our account in mark Matthew mentions the fact that Herod is Thinking that John is that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead Which would certainly have posed an immediate threat to Jesus okay because obviously Here's a guy that who's thinking that a guy he put to death has been raised from the dead. What is his prob what what very likely is going to be his next step? He might say, Hey, I gotta go do that again. Okay? He, he, he's raised from the dead. Jesus perhaps is hearing the it that is taking place here. It's, very, it's also possibly that Jesus is hearing that Herod thinks. John the Baptist is raised from that and that he is John the Baptist, okay? That is also a possibility here. Uh, again, grammatically, that's a, that's a possibility. But either way, these events transpired sometime after the death of John the Baptist and at a point of struggle, at a point of adversity, at a point of hardship in Jesus' ministry, when he felt it was best to retreat into the wilderness with his disciples and get some rest. Hence the, the, the title of our message this evening serving through struggle. Because what we're about to see is what Jesus comes face to face with when he is retreating into the wilderness, trying to get away, trying to take some time away to rest, and what he comes across is thousands and thousands of people. We've asked the question in the first section of our narrative, who is Jesus? And of course that question could be answered in a number of different ways, but I believe that Mark answers that question very clearly with this next narrative, that Jesus is... A compassionate shepherd. Look at verse 30 with me back in Mark chapter 6. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. Pause. Back in, in uh, still in Mark chapter 6, but verses 7 through 13, you'll notice that Jesus had sent out the twelve two by two. And at this point, they have now come back to Jesus and he has is, he is, he is received them back to himself. In verse 38, they're gathering to Jesus. They're telling him, it says, both what they had done and what they had taught. And Jesus said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They are so busy with all the people around that they don't even have time to eat. So they departed to a, des- des- a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them. And many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. We know from Luke's account that this is in the region of Beth, uh, Bethsaida, which is on the uh, northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. And there's some deserted area in that, in, in that general vicinity. Um, and it's very possible that at, when Jesus leaves, the people are on the shore and they're watching him. He goes from one small corner of the, of the Sea of Galilee to another, not a very long distance, and they can see him from the shore. And they're watching. Remember, the Sea of Galilee is something like 14 miles wide. They can see him from uh, where they're walking. They can see him from the shore, and they follow him to where he is going. Jesus is trying to get away, and when he arrives there, they beat him there. Okay, They don't have an engine or a a motor behind the boat. They're dependent on, on the winds, and they may not have had a good headwind, and so it took them a while to get there. By the time they get there, the people are there. They beat him there. Now, what's our response to this? Okay, if you're, if you're Jesus and you're the disciples, uh, again, re- regardless of if this is immediately following John the Baptist's death or not, there's a lot that's been going on here. These guys have been busy. It says they couldn't even eat. They were so busy with people coming and going. There's also all this stuff going on. They didn't even have time to eat. They try to get away, and they pull up to the shore, and, and what's waiting for them? But, but 5,000 men, it says here, <laughs> And, and plus women and children. Some have estimated somewhere in the ballpark of perhaps even fifteen to 20,000 people. What's our response to that? When you're trying to get away, you're trying to take some time, trying to rest, we say things like, I, ju- I just need a minute. I just need, I j- I just need a, to, to relax. I just need a moment to rest. Jesus did too. They arrived before them and came together, too. In verse 34, And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was what? He was moved with compassion. Because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. This needed rest was disrupted, but Jesus responds with compassion. He says it looks like they are sheep without a shepherd. When the day was now far spent, verse 35, Jesus has this discussion with his disciples. We have the feeding of the 5,000 here. We're very familiar with this account. His disciples come to him. They say, this is a, desert, is a deserted place. There is nothing nearby here, Jesus. We, we do not have enough food for these people. Already the hour is late. The disciples say, and, and, and rightly so, to be fair, send them away. We, we, we can't possibly provide for these people, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But he, Jesus, answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. <laughs> okay, Jesus says, I-, I know, but what? just find something to eat. F- find something to give them. He's a little more direct in-, in Matthew's account. But Jesus said to them, they don't need to go away. The disciples come to Jesus and say, send them away. And Jesus says, they don't need to go away. Give them something to eat. He answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat, which would have been, a, a denarii was a day's wage. So if you think maybe, I don't know, 40, 50 thousand dollars worth of bread to feed all these people. And the, the disciples aren't asking a real question. They're obviously not thinking they're going to do that. Just, they're, they're being sarcastic, saying, are we going <laughs> to, what do you want us to do? Go buy 200 denarii worth of bread, like forty, 000, fifty thousand 50 thousand dollars worth of bread to feed all these people. Jesus, come on. What do you, what do you think we're going to do here, Jesus? Verse 38. But he said to them, "How many loaves do you have? Go and see." When they found out, they had they said they had 5, 5 loaves and two fish. Then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green on the green grass. He sat down in ranks and hundreds and fifties. When they'd taken the five loaves, two fish, he looked up to heaven. He blessed and broke the loaves, gave them to his disciples, set before them the two fish. He divided among them all. They all ate. They were filled. Took up 12 baskets full of fragments of fish. And those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. Again, Matthew's account clearly states, plus women and children. The disciples each had a basket to take home. Twelve baskets full left over. I want to go back to verse 39. He commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. Mark's the only one who says that. He's the only one who points out that Jesus tells them to sit down on the green grass. And I've always heard, well, that's important because it means that he was there. In fact, I don't think Mark was there. Peter was there. Peter was his main source. Peter was there. Um, but it, it, it emphasizes the fact that we're dealing with an eyewitness testimony. It's someone who, and that's a valid point. I mean, someone who was actually there, who gave an account of this, of this, of this narrative of what took place here, and that's very important. And this is something I'd never thought of, never seen before. But but I want you to notice that that also Mark is the only gospel writer to mention what he says in verse thirty-four. Jesus, he was moved with compassion. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then in verse 39, he tells them to sit down on the green grass. And I put on your handout, Psalm 23, verse 2. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Do you think that maybe Mark had that verse in mind? Why else? Point out that he's on the green grass. I'm not trying to put thoughts, ideas in Mark's mind, but I do very much think that that is a very good possibility. That Mark is drawing our attention to the fact that Jesus, the answer to the question, who is Jesus? He is a great shepherd, he is a compassionate shepherd, he brings his people to green grass. And here Jesus performs the only miracle other than the resurrection that's recorded for us in all four Gospels. But we I, I think we often forget that Jesus did this miracle when he was supposed to be resting. He was supposed to be on vacation, taking a break. This wasn't a good time. Let me ask you when is it a good time to serve the Lord? Is it when it's convenient? When it's easy, when you've had a good night's sleep the night before. For Jesus, it was always a good time to serve, even when he was, like he was here, physically, emotionally drained. Jesus looked at the people, he saw them with compassion, he saw the need, and he taught them for the whole day. So so long that they had to get food. I wonder if perhaps tonight, as we draw all this to a close here, I wonder if, if you've been waiting. Perhaps a season in your life or something that perhaps the Lord has impressed on your heart that you need to do. And you've been saying, Lord, I, I know, I know I need to do that, and I'll do it when it's time. I'll do it when I'm ready. Something that you know that that you can and should be doing. You've been waiting, perhaps, for everything to work out. Maybe things to settle down at work. Maybe things to just kind of even out in your life a little bit. But maybe, like Jesus, you've been dealing with a loss or an extremely busy season of life, and you've been using that as an excuse. Could I challenge you tonight to, to look on the people around you with compassion? To see the opportunities as they present themselves. To not delay. To love them. Like Christ did, to not see people as an inconvenience, but as an opportunity to show the love of Christ. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we are thankful for your word. Thank you for the example of your Son Jesus Christ. Who, even in narratives like this, we can see, clearly see his humanity, but clearly see the compassion that he served with God. May we be like him. May we be people that are willing to serve when it's convenient, when willing to serve, when it's inconvenient. Give us opportunities, even this week, Lord. Help us to see the needs of those around us and to serve willingly. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.